Because, yeah, back then it was just like, you know, you just get on the mic and try. And then just over time, like and then, you know, working with Jordan, who I thought was pretty good, you know, he was doing stuff and we would take classes together and we'd get voice lessons together and do stuff like that. So over time, my hosting skills got better and better and better. And, you know, now I'm I, you put me in front of a microphone. I can talk for, you know, days. But back then it was it was a stretch just to even like look at the microphone and talk. Podcast Junkies, episode 274. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Astute listeners will know that I missed an episode last week, so want to make sure I call that out and let you know why that happened. Uh, my partner and I in Minneapolis moved apartments, and if that wasn't enough, I also got sick with the flu. And nowadays, when you get sick with the flu, you got to figure out if it's COVID or not. So I took a rapid test, and thankfully, it was not I also managed to tweak my back during the move. <laughs> so if it could have happened uh, last week, then it did. And uh, just a reminder to everyone podcasting out there that real life takes over sometimes. And obviously, you do what you can if you want to stay on schedule and be super consistent. Or uh, you just uh, bring folks in along on the journey and uh, let them know what's happening in the real world of podcasting. Because there's been things that... Uh, sometimes affect our ability to meet guests, record with guests, speak with guests, be in a clear space. Another thing related to the apartment is that I don't have my high-speed internet that I'm paying for, <laughs> actually fiber, which is cool, uh, in my office. Right now, it's, for some reason, the port was in the bedroom. And by the time the Wi-Fi signal makes its way over to my office, it's uh, sub-10 megabits per second. So, that being said, I've got to get the cable company over to install jacks in our offices. And when that happens, I will actually go back to being hardwired into the uh, ethernet. And that is gonna result in 900 megabit to uh, 1000 megabit speeds. So getting really far down the, the geeky rabbit, rabbit hole. <laughs> so apologies for that. But uh, yeah, that's what's been going on. So uh, I had to record a podcast episode in the bedroom with my laptop connected to the router. So all the things, the fun things that happen in the world of podcasting, that and a whole range of those have happened since I've been doing this since 2014. So it's always fun times. And speaking of OGs, I'm speaking with Jason DiFilippo, co-host of the Grumpy Old Geeks. And that's just one of his accolades. But before I talk about him, I want to remind you to check out last week's episode with Agnes Cosera. She's the co-founder of Podcorn. Really insightful conversation. Really impressed with Agnes and her two exits now, one to Google. Um, and she's really got the entrepreneurial spirit in her blood. And it's uh, really inspiring to see and hear what she's done. So please check that out, episode 273. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlet 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right, and the link will be in the show notes as well. So back to Jason. Jason is not only a podcast producer, he's an editor and he's a host. And Grumpy Old Geeks is defined as a no-holds-barred show about the internet and how it's affecting our lives for the good or bad. But since 1994, Jason's launched hundreds of websites as a programmer, a designer, and a founder. 
and eight years ago, he pivoted from programming to full-time podcast producer. We geek out about so much here. It's so fun to chat with someone who's uh, been around in the podcasting game for a long time and also knows uh, the world of the internet and how fun that was as Web 2.0 was, was coming online. Jason's got experience with Jordan Arbinger on his show, and they worked together really closely on Art of Charm and on the subsequent show. And it's a really interesting peek behind the curtain about what was happening as Jordan was making that transition and how Jason was helping and the conversations he's had um, with the crew, the likes of Tim Ferriss and Matt Mulwinig of WordPress. Uh, it's just been so fun to listen to this conversation and get that trip back in time. You'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot of podcasting history, tech history. <laughs> so there's no way you're not going to be entertained and informed in this episode. Make sure you stay to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag, but let's learn a little history with Jason. So Jason DeFilippo, host of Grumpy Old Geeks, thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Oh, glad to be here, Harry. Definitely been in the same circles for a while. I think on your website, you said you started podcasting around eight years ago. Is that about, is that about right? Eight and a half years ago. Eight yeah. Ago. Yeah. So that's, I started in 2014. April 2014 was my first episode of Podcast Junkies. So roughly around around the same time as well. Yeah, I started uh, with Jordan Harbinger as his producer back eight and a half years ago-ish. Can't really remember <laughs> the dates. I'm old, so things come and go. Where did you guys meet? <laughs> well, that's a long story. I used to run a blog network called MetBlogs. And when Jordan came to town, he, he had this podcast was a little side hustle for his main company, The Art of Charm. And he was looking to meet new people and network in town. So he saw that I ran the biggest blog in Los Angeles. So he reached out and we started to talk. And I'd already listened to his show because my friend Tim Ferriss was like, oh, listen to Neil Strauss stuff. And then then I just found Jordan stuff along the way. So when Jordan wrote me, I'm like, oh, hey, I listened to your show. And he's like, what? <laughs> he's like, you're the one? <laughs> so that's funny. went on as, as his technical guy because I was for 22 years, I was a uh, basically a web programmer like, you know, full stack web programmer. So I helped him out with his technical stuff and kind of engineered myself out of a job there. I got everything working for him and uh, they didn't really need me anymore, which is perfect. And uh, he's like, look, I'm having a hard time doing all of this podcast stuff by myself because at that point he was literally doing everything by himself. So he's like, do you want to just come on and be my producer? I'm like, yeah, I love podcasting. I'd love to be your producer. So that was really where that started. So I left one job that we worked on together and then took that job and the rest is history. What was the timing there? Because you met, you did mention Tim Ferriss. When did Tim start his show? I don't remember if, if it was, was it around that time? Or? Tim started his show later than that. Okay. It's quite some time. I've known Tim since the day before the four hour work week came out. So I used to, when I was a software engineer up in San Francisco, we worked, we ran in the same circles. His book launch party was actually at my friend's birthday party. And so it was, uh, we just all ran in the same circles. And I helped him a couple times uh, on his website when it got like slammed when he first started to come out. So I've known him for a very long time. That Tim.blog. Yeah. Not, not <laughs> back then it was the four hour workweek.com. That's right. That's right. That's where it started. When that came out, did your friends, that circle, did you have an idea of like what it was going to become or had he been teasing it out at that point? We all knew because there was one key thing in the book that we were all struggling with, which was email. And there was one thing in the book that says, 
stop checking your email every five minutes. That was it. That was the genius that built Tim Ferriss was that one line is like, you don't have to check your email. You can check it twice a day and the world's not going to you know blow apart. And we all started doing it. And, and lo and behold, the world didn't fall apart. So, you know, that was really, we just knew at that point, because we saw him speak at the Ignite conference the night before too, and he kind of laid it out. And, uh, but the email thing was really the that was the the gem that really got us all of us nerds in San Francisco to really get in on it. <laughs> I think I was in Ice Eleven Lamb in Minneapolis now, and I was chatting with Jordan. This is years ago, and Tim was doing the uh, the in person live podcast episode thing. At uh, he did he did it once at a at a theater, and I think we were in the same one because Jordan said, "Hey, my producer's going to show up," and I think we hadn't met previously, and so was that the one down here in L.A. at the Troubadour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he, he took a couple of folks to a, a diner afterwards or something like yeah, that. I stuck around <laughs> for the first half of it. I left too. <laughs> and because uh, I shot it, I did some backstage stuff with him beforehand. And then I got pictures of everybody. When Sean White came on, I got the pictures I needed. And I'm like, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> I'm done. Remember that poet, though? That poet was amazing. He was really good. Yeah. There was something magical about that time to just see and just how he's working that out. And because, and probably you could speak to this. There's something about a polished episode that's behind the scenes that gets all the edits and then there's something about trying to recreate that live it doesn't always work but it's it's fun to see it in motion yeah yeah because the first guest he had did not work he had some dj on and he was terrible <laughs> he was terrible oh my god he it wasn't diplo was it might have been I, I don't know i don't know djs but yeah he was god awful <laughs> then the poet came out and kind of like brought the audience back because we were all just like <laughs> like looking at each other going what is this crap <laughs> and then then Sean White came out and Sean's, you know, he's a, a rock star, so he can talk about anything. But uh, yeah, that first guy, we were just all like shaking our heads. And I had to go home and edit that thing. <laughs> so because <laughs> at that point I was working for Tim. Yeah. Did you guys come up with the idea together? Did you do live shows? No, he did that all by himself. Yeah. And it, he didn't do that many. I don't think there was that many after. No, he, did, he only did a couple of them. It was a real pain in the ass. It was really hard to do. Just the logistics behind it, you know. I mean, he sold out the Troubadour in like six minutes. So he was pretty impressed with that, but it was also a lot of stress. So I've heard people talk about the dynamic between trying to replicate what happens live by recording a live show and just completely different energy. Like when you're there and you experience it, it's something, but when you listen to it, I feel like you're not getting the same experience that the audience that was there in person had. Yeah, it's different. We did one live show for Grumpy Old Geeks up in Canada for the Fireside Convention and uh, conference. And it was weird. It was really weird trying to do it because mainly Brian and I never are in the same room to start with. And then we had to sit there next to each other on stage and Brian had terrible stage fright. And I did too, but I'm like, oh, I had less. So I had to like, you know, just try and keep the ball rolling. And we had 45 minutes worth of notes for a regular show, but he was so nervous. We cut through it in 20 minutes because he would just talk super fast and we wouldn't banter or anything. He was just like reading headlines and I'm like, slow down, slow down. And it's just, that's funny. You know, it's, it's a totally different dynamic and, and the stress level is way through the roof. Yeah. It's like, tried that, check that off. And like, it does, there's something about being able to just do that editing behind the scenes and just kind of tighten up everything. Yeah. Yeah. You just, just do a retake. It's just like, oh, I flubbed that. Let's just let's start at the top. You know, you can't do that on a live show you gotta, you gotta roll with it. You gotta, you know, keep the audience engaged and still make a decent show at the end. It was, it's a definitely a different beast. And you think about how a 
comic does it, a really good comedian, like how they hold that audience for, you know, 30, 45 minutes. And it's just like, really, really appreciate like the skill level involved to do something like that. Oh, I could never do it. I could <laughs> never do it. Especially when it's just you up there talking with just a microphone. We at least had laptops so we could like Google stuff, you know, it's like, even with our, like our notes, we were still like, oh man, what are we going to talk about now? <laughs> Yeah, I've, and I've spoken a couple of times like for podcasting stuff and even with slides that I know what's on the slides and I know I'm literally going to repeat what's on the slides. I'm still just like, <laughs> there's something about the energy of just people watching you and uh, and most people have done it. So I think they, they give you a little leeway, but just we're our own harshest critic. How far back do you remember like listening to or just getting into podcasts? Oh, at the very beginning. Because when I was a software engineer at Technorati, the blog search engine that most people will never remember, but I was going to be employee number one at Technorati, but then I went and worked with Chris Perillo, uh, and I brought him to LA, and we did a bunch of stuff. He was from Tech TV and all that stuff. And then when that didn't work, in the middle, I wrote a – basically, I had a little company called blogrolling.com. And Dave, the guy that founded Technorati, he and I were doing it at the same time. So if my database didn't work that night, I'd get a dump from him. And when his didn't work that night, you know, we'd go back and forth because we were scraping, you know, hundreds of thousands of blogs on our own servers every night. And so when he started, when he got funding, he's like, come up, come on up, let's go, let's go. But I couldn't because I was doing the thing with Chris. And he ended up hiring my friend Kevin Marks, who's a fantastic programmer, he used to work at Apple. He actually got fired from Apple for blogging. <laughs> That's how old that was. But Kevin wrote one of the first things, because we knew Dave Weiner and RSS. That was, we were, everybody was big into RSS. And, you know, at that point, our little team, we had five people that came up with the whole thing with blog tags. So if you remember tagging a blog, which you still can, that was our team. That was like five of us who created those things. So we were all in the, you know, in the little Digerati group that was making all that stuff at that time. And Kevin wrote one of the first Python scripts to like take an enclosure from an RSS feed, move it over to your iPod back then. And um, my friend Matt Mullenweg was living at this really swanky place because he and I got to San Francisco at the same time. And he got funding for WordPress and we'd always go hang out at his place for the launches and it was parties and everything. But Adam Curry was living down the hall and he had just started his podcast company. That's right. Like two blocks away from us. So like we were in the thing all the time. And my friend Evan Williams from Blogger, it, he'd just come from Blogger and they were doing Odeo. So we were sitting there with Odeo doing all that. That's how I was like one of the first, I was one of the first 140 people on Twitter because my friend Jason Sheldon was like, here, check this thing out. Sadly, I deleted my account, so it's not in the in the public record, but I was there. I was there. So we were all into podcasting back then. So that's when I really kind of started it and getting into it. So I knew about it since the since it started. Yeah, just I've been following it, especially the stuff that Adam and Dave Jones are doing at Podcasting 2.0 and the Podcast Index, and then hearing a lot of the background story of how he got connected to Dave and podcasting and I do remember that when you you used to have to sync the files, you used to plug in your iPod and then connect it to your computer. And then you could get like maybe 10, <laughs> 10 things on there. And then you'd have to like walk around there. I think the first time I saw, what was the company that used to make the MP3 player, but you can only put like three things on it. Rio, it was like one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Had those, had the creative labs one. I had, had all of those back in then. Yeah. Cause I would be running on treadmill and be like, wow, my CD is not skipping anymore. It's a digital file. This is like the future. It's like so cool. I still, I still remember getting the first AirPod shuffle or iPod shuffle. And I'm like, it just should, doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, I plug this little stick in and everything's on it. And I plug my headphones in and it plays all my music. I mean, the interface was not, not existent, but I'm like, it's on this stick. 
everything is on this stick. It makes no sense to me how they put it on this stick. I couldn't wrap my head around it. It was so cool. <laughs> how far back does your love of tech go? Uh, well, I was 13 when I got my first, or actually I was 12 when I got my first PC. So that's 38 years. Which one was it? Home built. We built it from scratch. Oh, okay. Actually, no, no, no. I, I take that back. The first one we got was uh, we got an IBM XT with two floppy drives, no hard drive. At that time, my mom was programming an AS400. Oh, cool. And my uncle had a tech company where they built memory, and he has RAM on Voyager out there in space somewhere. So I had a tech family. And my uncle brought home the first Mac the day that the first time he could get one. And I got to paint with it and everything. And so I've, I've been around tech pretty much forever. I was born in El Salvador. My, I came here when I was a year old, but in the, and so I was born in 1970. But my dad, he came here as an immigrant, but for some reason he was looking back at computer magazines in like 78 and he decided to do computer technician or something like that. So I thankfully got a little early start. I had my Tandy 1000s and my Texas Instruments <laughs> early days. And so, yeah, I never had any of this. I never had a Commodore 64. I never had a Trash 80. I always wanted that big one piece Trash 80. And my friends all had the tape players and everything. And I'm like, well, I got a floppy disk and a hole punch. So, you know, remember the old the old hole punch trick? So you could double the density on the floppy disks. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. That's right. Wow. Yeah, that's a big flash. Oh, that's a elephant brand. Those are our favorites. Those are the ones that failed the least. <laughs> and if you go into like I, people's homes, I, I think there's actually still the three and a half inch, the smaller ones in my parents' house somewhere. And, and I'd be playing like Leisure Shoot Larry or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all these like multiple CD or disc games. It's just wild. Yeah. The first game I ever bought was a game on the IBM called Zill, Z-Y-L-L. And it was uh, basically a text adventure, you know, like you, you wake up in a dark room type of thing, like Zork and all that. And, you know, it was eight floppies. So you had to like keep swapping floppies when you'd get to a new place and everything. It was crazy. And uh, Adventure, I think, was another one. Wasn't it? Was, yeah, there was a couple. Was that the Atari one? That's the Atari one. It, it was the same kind of concept, yeah, but, but it's very, very basic graphics. It's just amazing to see. Yeah. Ah, the old days. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were with this group and essentially at the like the new era, whatever wave it is at that point in terms of tech, did you have a, a feeling for like what was possible in the future with, with technology and like you're seeing all your friends get, get started with these companies and was it exciting for you to be there and just witness a lot of it and you know, like we're at the beginnings of WordPress and all that stuff is, is really... Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, that's why I was there. That's why I wanted to be in San Francisco. I wanted to be in that, that route because you walk down the street and you're like, you know, there's like every A-list blogger that you've ever heard of and you just sit around and you go have lunch with them. You know, it's just like all these famous people. It's like we we're walking to work the first day and uh, this girl, Heather Champ, comes up and starts talking to us. And I'm like, that's it. They said, that, oh, that was Heather Champ. And I'm like, oh, because she was a super famous blogger at that point. And then the guy I'm standing next to, Derek, who started the same day I did, he's like, yeah, that's my wife. <laughs> you know? It's like crazy stuff like that. <laughs> Aaron Schwartz would come to our Technorati hackathons, you know, when he was he was like 13. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, before his tragedy. But uh you know, just the super smartest people in the world. I was hanging around with Joey Ito, who went on to be, back then he was just a VC guy. He invested in my first company. He was my first investor ever. Wow. And then goes on to become the head of the MIT Media Lab. You know, it's like all of that stuff back then. It was so fun. I wish it never ended, but yeah. Yeah, that 99, 98, wave. And what was the magazine that was just... Well, Wired was across the street from us at that point. And then there was the other one that was tech, the, the New York City Silicon... 
insider at one of those red herring was one of them red herring yeah red herring yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was john battelle was it wasn't that john battelle i think so yeah because john battelle then founded federated media who was doing blog ads and we ended up working with them and i remember the, like when the first uh federated media dinner like my company was there met blogs and uh, kevin rose was there because he was he lived two blocks from me and we both got on the same thing and he got yeah basically he was getting money for dig from them and uh yeah he did better than i did <laughs> let's just say that he did fine i used to work at e-trade and uh i remember on my lunch breaks i would watch the dignation videos <laughs> this is like yeah him and alex they were they were fantastic i used to go when he did the live shows for that i would go down with my camera and take photos of those and post them on the blog and yeah i think the worst one was uh their most infamous dignation was in reno and Alex got so sick because everybody was buying him shots. And uh, me and my friend Bob went to that one. And uh, when they were leaving, because Alex had to go home early, we got their suites. They had like full suites. And they're like, here are the keys to the suite. <laughs> oh, there's so many memories of stuff. It's almost like you wished the recording was better for those stories back then, because a lot of those like carry over. What made you want to start Grumpy Old Geeks? So I started producing with Jordan and I wanted my own show. I'd always wanted my own show. I bought the equipment to do it when I ran Metblogs and everybody was doing starting podcasting in the audio days. And I knew nothing about audio and I couldn't get this damn microphone to work no matter what I did. I didn't understand that it was a condenser microphone and it needed phantom power and all of that stuff. I had no idea what that stuff was back then and ended up giving up and said, ah, we'll just do it some other time, whatever. And then when I started working with Jordan, I'd, I'd really been getting into podcasts at that point. And I'm like, I want my own show. So I went around and interviewed a bunch of my friends. I'm like, I can't really find anybody to do it. And I just happened to go to lunch with my friend, Brian. Every now and again, we would just go to the bar and talk for four hours about tech because I knew him from 97, 96, 97, because we were working at the same company called Boxtop. We were working on like Stone Temple Pilots and Barbie. And then I got a job uh, working on Star Trek and left and went to Paramount for uh, quite a while. Oh, nice. But we'd always stayed in touch and we'd just get together and just fetch about tech. And I'm like, okay, you're going to be my host co-host. And then we started it and we said, if we don't make any money in 10 episodes, we're never going to do it again. hundred episodes later, we still hadn't made any money, but we were still going because it was fun. I think it took to like a episode 120 before we made our first dollar. <laughs> and uh, did you feel like you had a strong hosting skill set or is it just kind of learn on oh, the job? No. Terrible. Listen to those first episodes. They're terrible. Absolutely terrible. That's reassuring. Yeah. Because, yeah, back then it was just like, you know, you just get on the mic and try. And then just over time, like, and then, you know, working with Jordan, who I thought was pretty good, you know, he was doing stuff and we would take classes together and we'd get voice lessons together and do stuff like that. So over time, my hosting skills got better and better and better. And, you know, now I'm, I, you put me in front of a microphone, I can talk for, you know, days. But back then it was a stretch just to even like look at the microphone and talk. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we threw away the first three episodes, which is what I always tell everybody who's starting a show. It's like record three episodes and throw them away. Don't even keep them around for posterity. <laughs> Just do them, delete them. And episode four can be your first episode and it's still going to be terrible, but it's not going to be as terrible as episode one, <laughs> negative one was, you know. And no one's going to know. So that's even better. Exactly. Exactly. You got to practice. You got to practice. I think what's interesting is the front row seat. You've worked with, you know, you mentioned Tim, Jordan, and Christopher Lockhead. And I can't imagine that some of that just, 
you just assimilate some of the knowledge and just some experience when you see these guys do what they do and they continue to get better over time and you as their producer like how much of that were you learning and maybe not realizing it at the time but now that you you know with your own show and just looking back like just your thoughts on just how they approach the craft of podcasting well, a lot of it was, you know, we'd learn together, you know, we'd listen to a show, we'd do a show, and then we'd talk about what went right, what went wrong. In the early days, we would ask the guests what we could do better, you know, do it off the air at the end of the show and say, hey, what did you like about this, your experience, what do you think we could do better, were there questions that you wish we would have asked, and things like that. Very cool. And we just learned, We, you know, it was a whole collaborative learning process. It wasn't just like, you know, I'm sitting there watching the master do it. We all worked together to really, all of us, bring us all up and get better. Because especially with uh, working with Jordan, I was a co-host on a couple hundred episodes, so, you know, it behooved him to help me and it was up to me to help him. So we wanted to get that show better. And that was, you know, it was just a, a learning process. And with Tim, you know, Tim started before I joined. He did like maybe 30 or 40 episodes before I joined in. And I started giving him tips and I'm just like, dude, stop doing this, get this, get this mic, go buy this. And then, you know, we would have a couple hour long phone calls just to, you know, so I could explain things to him and say, this is what we're doing over here. You need to take what we've learned over here and apply it to your show and things like that. And that's how I started, you know, like training people as well. You know, I did a lot of with Tim, there was a lot of training and with Tim, there was a lot of fixes in the edit. Because one of the things that I would harp on him with, and he, since there's a new editor there, he doesn't do what I did. Tim has a penchant for asking compound questions, which is a terrible idea when you're a host. Yes, yes, that's true. He's like, I'm going to ask you a question in four parts. Now, I want you to go through it one by one by one. And by the time they get to number two, they can't remember what they did, you know? Always. So like as an editor, what you do is you take question one, you take the answer, then you cut back to the original, take question two, slide it back in, and then get the answer to question two, and then you make it sound seamless, you know? And uh, that's just one of those things that uh, I wish Tim would have really finally learned. <laughs> no. <laughs> Compound questions are terrible when you're a host. Always remember that. Yeah, that's definitely 101 because you overwhelm the guest and they're not sitting there with a notebook and they're not <laughs> keeping track of what you asked and it, it inevitably is going to make for more production work at the end of the day. How did you improve as a producer? I mean, it's just obviously with that many reps and working on those, those number of shows. Yeah, it's practice. You know, it's just a lot of practice. We did, I mean, with Jordan, I probably did 700 shows, you know, a bunch of them with AOC until that imploded. And then back is the Jordan Harbinger show. I mean, it, on Jordan, on when we went to the, even I think even at AOC, we were doing three shows a week, 52 weeks a year. And then when we went to the Jordan Harbinger show, it was the same production schedule, which is grueling. I mean, it's grueling. Jordan could take time off. He could go, he would go to China for a month because we'd put stuff in the can, but I'm still sitting there doing the work to make sure the shows go out. So I never got a day off for years. And that was tough. But uh, doing that, you know, you go through the grinder, booking guests, you learn what works, what doesn't work, prep forms, things like that, you learn to at, get, you know, our prep form ended up being something that had been it taken two years to master to get people to answer things. Because we, you know, we know what didn't work. It's like, and then we finally figured out what did work, how to word questions to get people to put the things that you need and get your prep done and all that stuff. And, you know, booking guests is its own black art. It took me two years. I worked on Chris Hadfield to get him on the show for two years. So there's a lot of persistence that goes into it too. So what beyond, you know, what you hear previously, what I've heard before is just, you know, you got to be consistent and, you know, some people pull out like the sales 
thing of like you need to reach out to people seven times or you know a wide variety of advice on the topic but what worked for you specifically with chris is it just politely asking repetitively over over a period of time or, or just adding something new every time he had a gatekeeper his son was the gatekeeper so the art of charm wasn't really like the greatest company it was basically a pickup artist company so when chris's son would go google us they were in google in canada right because they were up in toronto and all of our seo work that we'd done had been in google us and then when you're in canada you get a completely different set of results and uh I won't repeat what the some of the phrases were that that showed up for the first results for the art of charm, but it took us you know thousands of dollars and a lot of work to get those things expunged, and I kept following up with them, and finally he was just like, you know nobody's ever done this like out of all the people that want to book my dad that I say no to nobody has ever come back over and over again until they got it right so you get it you get the interview very cool how'd the interview go terrible he was a horrible <laughs> guest. <laughs> He was a horrible guest. He got so mad because Skype wouldn't work. And even though we told him 10 times, this, we're not recording the video, he got all dolled up and he had his Hawaiian shirt on and everything. I'm like, we're not recording the video for this, so you don't have to worry about it. And he's like, I wish somebody would have told me that. And he just got angry. And I'm like, here's the thing. Astronauts are the worst guests because they suck at technology here on Earth. They can't make Skype work. They can't do anything. We had Mike Massimino. He was a pain in the ass. He couldn't do anything to make it work. We ended up doing a, a landline call with a Skype in thing. Oh my God, that's so funny. Because the technology back then was way different. I used to run, because I was also a technical producer, so I would record the shows. I'm in Chicago. I've got a rack of Mac minis run through a 16-channel PreSonus actual mixer with the knobs on it doing mix minuses and things like that to make sure everything works. And uh, so it was a completely different thing. He's not, like, now we're on Squadcast and it's like, okay, boom, press the button, go. You know, it wasn't like that back then at all. That's hilarious. Astronauts make the worst guests. <laughs> they do. They totally make the worst guests. <laughs> I'm curious about the time of the AOC transition. Jordan has come on twice here and the second time it was right around the time that that happened. And I'm just wondering what it was like from your perspective, because you had worked with him on AOC. And just for the benefit of the listener, it's the period of time when Jordan separated from the Art of Charm team. Oh, they stole his company. They stole his yeah. company. His two partners stole his company. And one of them still has his last name that was totally fake. AJ Kazarowski is the guy's real name. And he still goes by AJ Harbinger, which makes no sense. But they stole the company. They got together, stole the show, stole the company, fired everybody. I lived off my credit cards for four months so we could relaunch the show. It was a terrible time. I had to move to California so I could afford to get you know, health insurance. And I moved in with a friend. I lost my house in Chicago. It was a terrible time. So then we relaunched in February of 2018. And by the end of 2018, we won the Apple Podcast Award for most downloaded new show. So that's how much work we put into it just to start from scratch. And we were up against people like Dax Shepard, who won the award that year, too. You know, it wasn't that was a hell of a year. Hell of a year. What do you think were the pieces that allowed that to happen? You know, obviously knowing Jordan, it's part of his personality, knowing, you know, your professionalism, but you just explained how much of a challenging time that was. What was the, the regrouping like? Because Jordan touched on it a little bit, but it's just like, hey team, this is, you know, figuring out who's on your side, who's not. That's probably early on. And then can you talk a little bit about like what happens at that point? 
Well, we had to drag Jordan out of a deep, dark hole. I mean, it took us months to grab him and get him out because he was just like second guessing himself. And, you know, was just like, do I want a podcast? Do I want to do this? Can I do it? Do I have the network? And I'm like, yes, me and his wife were basically on him every day, just trying to drag his ass kicking and screaming out of that hole. And we finally got him out. And then the, the flip switched. And then it was like, boom, let's go. But it was all hands on deck. Jordan did, I think, over 150 interviews that year just to get his name back out there. And like we predicted, his network came to the rescue and everybody jumped in. You know, Podcast One were the best partner we could have ever had for that relaunch. They put their, you know, their weight behind it. It was just, I mean, it was just a really, really, it's just a lot of work, man. It was just a lot of work. What did you learn? Did you guys learn about anything about yourselves working together that closely on something that's so important, success of it important for everyone that's involved? Yeah, don't have crappy business partners is the first thing we learned. But no, I mean, it was just it's just one of those trial by fire things where you come out, you know, closer and stronger than when you went in. And, you know, by the end of that, you know, Jordan, and I had shorthand for everything. It's like, you know, finish each other's sentences. And, you know, when we were doing ad reads or intros and outros and things like that, you know, it's just we just got a really good groove into working because we were producing so much content to get it out there. Like I said, three episodes a week, 52 weeks a year, except for January when I was moving. <laughs> you know, we took, we basically took January off to figure out how we were going to bring the show back and regroup. Well, you guys did an absolute amazing job. And just knowing a little bit from what Jordan's shared and just watching it from, also watching it from afar, I mean, it's really commendable to see what, what you guys put together and just a testament to how much importance one needs to place on their network and building those relationships because I think it's a function, I know it's a function of, of all that work that Jordan put in to build those relationships over time while he was at AOC because all the way he's explained it is that when he started calling up the fr his friends, they were like, yeah, dude, of course, like we're going to help you. Like, <laughs> Yeah, whatever you need. Yeah, whatever you need. Yeah, that was the thing, whatever you need. Yeah. Yeah, it fin it, I mean, it solidified after a while because he just didn't believe he could make those calls. And then we finally like start making the calls, figure out what we can do, and we'll go from there and we'll build this thing back up. We've, you know, at that point, we had like 650 episodes under our belt with AOC and, you know, tons of stuff. And we, you know, it was, it was, you know, touch and go at a time, but it was survival. We had no choice. It's like, this is what we do. We podcast. So let's go podcast, you know? Because there were, I mean, there were times where he was going to, you know, just retire and move on. And I was thinking the same thing, but then we, you know, keep each other going. Hypothetically speaking, if you were to have retired at that time, what would you have gone to do? I'd probably gone back to tech or gone to a network to be a podcast producer. Okay. Yeah. Because I could, I was, since I was in Chicago, I could have left and gone to any of the TV stations that were starting their podcast channel at that time and, you know, had a nice job. But I hate going to an office. As you can see, I'm in my home right now. I'm never leaving. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I did the corporate life for a long time and I never want to do it again. Yeah, I did almost 20 years of it and I uh, just can't even imagine like sh putting on a tie and like waiting for the bus and God, no. <laughs> getting on the subway. Or, like, Inane no. banter at the office. Oh, no. Thank you. Happy Monday. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It feels like a Monday. No, 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 no. There's a reason they made a TV show about several shows and movies about that life because. Well, Dilbert, just go read Dilbert. <laughs> That's really it. That's all you need to know. Office space. And that genie's out of the bottle, I think, because after COVID, because everyone's like, no, we can't do that. You can't have our, our team work remotely. It'll never work. It'll never work. And how about a forced experiment for a year? 
and I have to figure out if it will work. And now I was like, yeah. Yeah, we just covered this on the latest GOG. People are saying that, no, we're not coming back. We'll quit. We'll quit instead of coming back to an office, which really sucks for podcasters because we're losing that commute time, which is like our bread and butter. I mean, I'm telling you, this COVID sucked for download numbers because we had no commute time. Yeah, they dropped. Oh, God, I don't know about you, but uh, Grumpy Old Geeks lost about 30% during COVID. Yeah, that was the number I heard across the board, just informally polling people about 30%. Yeah, it's painful. It's painful. Thank God for Patreon and PayPal and Stripe and listener donations. Otherwise, we'd have you know, put that show away to bed a long time ago because there's just nothing. So segueing into the, the listener donations and the direct contribution to creators, I know you've been following some of the work that Adam's, again, <laughs> doing with Dave Jones on podcast. The value for value stuff. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Too complicated still. It's way too complicated. He's got a long way to go. And just for, you know, just disclosure, I do support them. I have a $20 monthly recurring subscription to, to buy a server for them because I think what they're doing is great, especially after the Apple thing in June where they, you know, just didn't care and everybody lost tons of downloads. My whole morning has been dealing with advertisers saying, what happened? You know, it's like, it's tough. When Apple just doesn't care, we lose money as a community. It's not like a little thing. It's a big thing. So that's why I'm glad that everybody is getting behind having an, an alternate directory out there where we can really, you know, just have it and go. Yeah, that, that point about the tech being a little challenging to use. I mean, I, I dove in there and, and I set up my podcast, the value block. Get your and lightning <laughs> wallet and all that stuff. Even the, the terminology and the fact that they get paid in sats. I think at some point, someone should just do just show pennies even if it's like micro pennies people understand pennies like it's hard enough to like with all this tech to get to understand that like ten thousand sats sounds like a lot but it's really nothing <laughs> it's like two cents you can literally <laughs> buy a piece of bubble gum <laughs> it's like thanks what do you think about the overall vision about moving away from these or having a compliment to these other models of patronage for podcasters i'm always fine with that yeah compliment you know have options you know, like I said, we've, we're on Patreon. The only reason we're still on Patreon is we were grandfathered in at the original rates because we started when they started. So our Patreon rate and our PayPal rate are the same. But surprisingly, people don't trust Patreon. We get more money coming in through PayPal every week or every month than we do coming through Patreon, which is interesting, even though we do have an upsell on Patreon where you can get it with no ads. But people are just like, I just want to support the show. I don't care about the ads. It's fine. And we just launched a tip jar with Stripe, you know, so that just comes directly to us. Working great. People can subscribe that way too. They can do a subscription or they can do one-time payments just to help us out. And, you know, I think more options are better, honestly. I just wish there was an easier way to like tie these all together into one platform where we could give stuff away. I'm sure that there's, could probably do it with something like Memberful or something like that, but... It's just too much work. The amount of money we make on the show, it's not worth the effort to honestly do that. How do you engage the community for Grumpy Old Geeks? Well, what do you mean? Do you do like a Facebook group or like, is it, is it where? No, Facebook's the devil. So if, <laughs> if you ever listen to the show, you know that we don't do that. We have a Discord channel right now and our Discord channel is pretty lively. I have a Clash of Clans clan. So I got 50 people in there. We've been playing for five years almost now. It's, that's a ton of fun. Any new members that come in say, hey, what do you think of bird scooters or AI? <laughs> so, you know, we have fun with that. But yeah, the Discord channel is pretty much, we've got like 800 members on there right now. You know, people come and go. We've got a core 
group of people, like maybe 30 or 40 people that we all know and chat with all the time. And they're, they're basically like friends now. So it's pretty cool. Are you looking to do maybe in-person events at some point? Never. Never again. Uh-uh. <laughs> the problem is our audience is so small, we could never fill. I mean, it'd be like four people at a bar, no matter where we went, you know, because at our peak, we were getting 13,000 downloads an episode, which was okay. And now we're down to about eight or nine, you know, so when you s- sprinkle that across the globe, it's never going to work. The only place that I think we would ever do a, a live show that would be kind of fun would be Australia or New Zealand, because we've got some really super fans down there. We've got a lot of listeners in Australia and New Zealand. And um, I'm guessing like some of the early supporters, you'd know by name pretty well. And we know them all by name. Yeah. We list every supporter on the show every week. So if you donate it, you get a shout out on the show. It's similar to what uh, Dave and Adam do on the Podcasting 2.0 show. And, and so funny, I'm having a conversation, a round two conversation with Jen Briney of Congressional Dish. And if you're familiar with her, but she reads out the congressional bills <laughs> like, and she finds all the, the shitty stuff they've like buried deep. <laughs> but she, I always loved what she does at the end of her show. It's almost 10 to 15 minutes she dedicates towards reading out like the names of the people. She's like, Jason just sent me a check for $3.29. And she she's, accepts every form of payment. <laughs> like if you want to mail in check. That's Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think early pod- I mean, podcasters don't really think about that. In my opinion, don't think about it enough. Like every single listener is valuable and every single listener that contributes is like 10 X valuable. Cause it's like, wow, you actually went out of your way to find a way to get money to us. And, and that says a lot. Yeah. No, we read all the reviews, especially the one stars. Those are our favorite. Don't give us a one star just to do it. Trust me. We <laughs> You can sniff those out. Yeah, we can sniff those out. But uh, yeah, no, I think for six years, we've read off the names of people. We don't list the amounts because I don't know. I just kind of find the the amount thing gross just a little bit because I mean, sometimes we'll get like $500 donations here and there from people who are just like, I've been listening to you for six years and I just, I, you know, I got my stimulus check. So here you go. And I'm like, That's awesome. thank you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, so it's just because I don't want to shame the people that only want to give a dollar or two, you know, I'd rather them just. If you're donating, we love you. It's honestly a dollar or ten dollars, whatever it is. Any donation to us is just gold. So because it just shows that they care, like you said, you know. Yeah. So I, I never want to say how much people are giving us. What keeps you doing the show? Inertia. Honestly, it's inertia. We've just been doing it so long. It's just like it's like okay, you know. I see a sh- see an an idea, put it in the show notes, put it there. It's, it's just something we do now. I don't know what's going to happen now. Brian, my co-host, is moving to Canada next week so, and w- to get a real job. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, I mean, we, don't, we have no plans to stop, you know? Yeah, it's so funny because I treasure like the conversations I have on this show just for the simple – because, well, number one, there's no more – no conferences there's no conferences and that's where i was meeting on hanging out with my podcast peeps and and that doesn't happen anymore so now it's like i like really look forward to like these hours of conversation to just catch up on connect with people that i've just seen online or just old friends and it and it becomes like something that you don't want to give up regardless of like how the listenership grows or or declines i think just having that connection in that platform to say hey let's let's come on the show and let's let's talk about something yep and one of the things when i first started doing shows i I created shows, a bunch of shows that just didn't go for long, but it's because I wanted to learn either the tech or I had an agenda. Like I did a show called Does It Have Legs? Mute buttons are a friend. So I spoken like a true podcast producer. I love it. (laughs) So I did the show called Does It Have Legs for two reasons. One, I wanted to figure out how to use multiple USB mics on my Mac. 
So I had three road podcasters and if you, you know, it's difficult to figure that out back in the day. So you had to make a virtual device and the audio MIDI setup and all that stuff. There wasn't any way to do it easy on a Mac. So I figured that out, had to record in GarageBand, which was like pulling teeth and then do all that stuff. But the other thing that I did it for was because my friend Mike and I, who I was living with, we would just hang out all the time and we're like, let's have something that we can do every week, which is watch a movie and talk about it. So we just created a show for it. What's uh, one or two pet peeves you have as a producer? As a producer? Yeah. Oh, God. People who don't read the emails that I send them about what's going to happen. People who show up with no headphones, even though it is in bold at the top of the email, say headphones required. Yeah, that's the biggest one. Chrome is required. But uh, yeah, for the most part, I don't have that many pet peeves anymore. The Blue Yeti, of course, is obviously everybody's pet peeve. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've been screaming about that thing for eight years and people still don't get it. So I quit. I just gave up, you know, that's funny. That was the one thing we did at our first, cause grumpy old geek started with a blue Yeti and an Apogee mic. So those were our two condenser mics in a giant vaulted room with hardwood ceilings and under the flight path of the Venice airport, the worst, the worst of the worst <laughs> of the worst. So when we did do our first live show up in Canada, I took the original blue Yeti that we started the show with and we gave it away. We had a raffle or like a trivia contest. So we would yell out to the audience. We'd know we would ask trivia, but the trivia was stacked because it was like, you know, because we were talking about cryptocurrency and we hate cryptocurrency. So it was just like, who like, and there were a bunch of crypto bros in the audience. So they were just like, it's the future of money. It's the way it's democratizing. And then one guy just out of the corner goes, it's bullshit. We're like, <laughs> Bingo! He gets the <laughs> that, microphone. That's hilarious. And he turned out to be a super fan that was there from like Czechoslovakia, or not, I guess Czechoslovakia didn't exist, but uh, from Prague. He came over from Prague for the conference and was a fan, so he, he totally got it. <laughs> Are you have plans to go to any of the conferences as things start to open up? I don't go to conferences. No, I've been to two. Have you been to any? Uh, I've been to two podcast movements. Got zero out of them. I'm not. I just don't do that. It's not my thing. It's like, I don't want to hang around. No, no offense to all podcasters out there. I just don't hang out with podcasters because it's my job. And when I'm done with my job, I kind of want to go hang out with my dogs, watch TV, do something else. The last thing I want to do on my time off is to go hang out with other podcasters. And it's like, even when I was a programmer for 20 some years, they're like, do you know anybody that can do this? I'm like, no, I don't hang out with programmers. <laughs> I hang out with musicians and photographers and artists. I just don't hang out with people that I do the thing that I do for work with. So I just don't, I've never been really big into the the conference scene. I'd rather just spend my time learning how to be better at my craft instead of going out and listening to people who are worse at the craft than I am for an hour, <laughs> giving me a talk, you know? That's hilarious. What, uh, what kind of dogs do you have? I got a Rottweiler, 120 pound Rottweiler named Bam Bam. And uh, I have an upside down. I got to show you this, see if you can even see it. This is an upside down Doberman puppy on the couch. Can you see her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how she sleeps. She sleeps upside down and is a contortionist. So we got that. And I got a, another dog who's, uh, they sold to me as a Rottweiler puppy, but turned out to be kind of like a Beagle Doberman hybrid. But we have a matching set. They all are brown and black. So we got medium, large, and super duper extra large as my Rottweiler. That's funny. All right. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's um, the most misunderstood thing about you? Most misunderstood thing about me? Everybody thinks I'm a jerk when they listen to Grumpy Old Geeks. Uh, the show has turned me into a jerk. It's like when you talk about stuff over and over again all week, you just kind of turn into a dick when that's your job. And uh, I'm actually a really nice, funny guy. So, You know, it's interesting that people, it depends on how 
sensitive they are or how well they can take a joke or I, I grew up in New York, so I have somewhat of thick skin, but to the point where I like don't say hi to people on the street here in Minneapolis. And my girlfriend's like, you should just say hi. How's your day going? <laughs> Something like that. So No, I'm in New York. FU is the only thing we say in New York. So, and I think when people hear your personality and the way you come across, like if they're not prepared for it, I'm sure it's a, it's a bit jarring and shocking to them. Acerbic is generally what people think of Acerbic. me. <laughs> but yeah, I'm yeah. not. I'm, I'm generally a nice guy. Unless you come up with a crappy tech product or a bird scooter or Bitcoin, that I'll give you my two cents. But for the most part, not a scooter fan. Well, we were, were ground zero. You know, they started off in Santa Monica, which is where uh, my co-host Brian lives. And now they're everywhere around here. And, you know, the first thing I do is throw them in the street and just, you know, it's like, I do not want these things on my sidewalk because they spook my dogs. So if I'm out for a walk with my dog and there's some idiot leaves a scooter in the middle of the sidewalk that I can't get past and my dog like freaks out. So I'll get these damn things out of here. Hate them. So that said, what's something you've changed your mind about recently? I think the biggest thing, at least when it comes to podcasting, I had a really good conversation on Eric Hundley's podcast, Unstructured, with what's his name from Podcast News? James Cridlin. James Cridlin. James Cridlin and I had a good discussion on Podcast News one time where I've always been very anti dynamic ad insertion. And he actually changed my mind. And I switched hosts and went to Art19 from Libsyn. And now we run dynamic ads on all of our shows because I can at least, you know, I can keep that under control. And uh, it turned out to be pretty good, pretty good for us. And I've come up with some ideas too. I want to do, since you can target ads now with dynamic insertion by, based on geolocation, I want to do a, a scavenger hunt. So if you're listening in Australia, you get a clue. <laughs> if you're listening in Sweden, you get a clue. And you have to go on our Discord channel and talk to the other people to put the clues together to figure out the treasure hunt to actually like win a prize or something, you know, because with Dynamic Ads, you can do that. I say, okay, we're going to only put this on five downloads in Australia. So if you're one of the magical fives, you got the golden ticket so you can do things like that, you know, because they're always talking about, you know, what you can do to make money. I'm like, I want to have fun. I want to be a storyteller. I want to like do something neat. So I'm trying to figure out a way right now to use Dynamic Ads to like actually engage the audience and do something neat like that. But yeah, James totally changed my mind on it. And I uh, give him credit for that. I love the guy. He's actually a pretty smart guy. Yeah, he's really smart. <laughs> it's just it would, like the way his mind thinks about everything related to podcasting and how he keeps tabs of all that stuff. So I'm just every time I listen to pod news in the morning, I'm just like, ah, oh, man, now I got to bookmark this this episode because I got to go look up the thing that he was talking about or this tool. And no, I never just... <laughs> listen to it. I just read it. <laughs> Takes two seconds to read that newsletter. What was your, your beef with dynamic ads before? Uh, the biggest issue is if you're doing show notes and you want to have like timestamps in the show notes, it's you can't do that with dynamic ads because every time somebody gets a gets the file, it's completely different length. You know, so you can't say this starts here, this starts there, this starts whatever. Screws up chapters if you want to do chapters and things like that. And then I did I did some market research, which is what I always do. A B test. Oh, that was the other thing. It's like with Jordan and me and and back in the day, like I said, I'd do shows to test things and all that stuff. We would test on Grumpy Old Geeks. We do A-B testing for different types of intros, outros, anything that you can test, we would test on the smaller show. And when we knew it worked, we would take it up to the bigger show type of thing. I lost my train of thought when I was there because I just thought... <laughs> no, just dynamic ads because in the beginning, there was so much just you couldn't control the experience and chapter notes and stuff with dynamics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a big thing. But then I found out nobody cared. Nobody clicked on the links to go to different segments in the thing. It's just like... Okay, if nobody cares about that, then that argument's out the window. So 
throwing some ads and it's great when we want to go back and just throw in like for remnant stuff, I'm going to throw in an affiliate link, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to do an ad for private internet access or one password and just throw it in and say, just let it run for the remnants because the remnants I get from art 19, they're okay. You know, just, but cost per, you know, cost per acquisition on those things is really tiny. So if I run an affiliate program, like our VPN sponsor, private internet access, GOG.show slash VPN, we make, you know, we make a couple thousand dollars a year off that. We, of just having that in there as just a go-to because anytime somebody re-ups, you get money off of it. And like those types of affiliate deals will keep us going during the lean times when there's like no ads or traffic goes down or something like that. So that was a really nice thing to, uh, it's just a perk of dynamic ads that we can swap that out and do things like that. So, you know, all in all, it really was a, a boon for our business. We've made a lot more money since we went to dynamic ads. That said, but they're dynamic, mostly ho there's some of the inventory, but it's a mix of ads you get from inventory, but also host red ads as well, right? Yes. Yeah. So the host red ads always get priority. So if we have, you know, a paid advertisement, we'll put it in for X amount of impressions for the that run. And then when that those impressions run out for what the advertiser paid for, then they get backfilled. But I do all the reads or Brian does some of the reads and those are definitely host red ads. But if there's nothing there that week, then then Art19 can throw in a, you know, a pre-done one that doesn't get much. What's a shitty host red ad sound like? <laughs> well, a shitty host red ad. There are no shitty host red ads. Well, then no, because they're, they're all, bad. All of our host red ads are fantastic. No, 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 no. I mean, for others, when you hear them, and you're just... Yeah, the dynamic ads. Oh, they're all terrible. <laughs> Have you listened to any of them? There's no good ones. No, but I think people don't understand. Like, there's a bit of an art. Jordan does a good job as well, like reading, just making you feel like you actually care about the sponsor, you know, and, and people don't take the time to do that. Yep. That came from a lot of work and a lot of rewrites. I used to I wrote a lot of copy for those ads back in the day. So I'm glad he's still doing, still doing good with that. At least that stuck. And I think uh, what people don't realize is the sponsor appreciates that and appreciate that. And it's just makes it easier to re-up too. And when, when you go back and they're like, oh, okay, then this show actually cares about the product or is at least putting the effort in. Well, the sponsor cares about acquisition. So if they convert, that's what the sponsor cares about. They couldn't care less if you're farting your ad into the microphone as long as somebody's clicking on it and buying their product. Let's be clear about that. Because I, I follow up with all my advertisers now. In the old days, they would never tell you how you're doing, which I thought was stupid. And I'm just like, just tell me how we're doing. How many acquisitions we got? What do we have to do to keep above the level that you want to re-up? And you know, we don't want to be at that line. We want to be well above that line. So we will throw in some extra ads or do some extra stuff to get that number up. So when it comes time to renew, it's a no brainer. You know, we've had hover on the show for like five years now. And of course, today was the one day I get an email from them saying, Hey, your numbers have dropped significantly. So now I got to go and fix that and do all that. But I think a lot of that comes back to Apple in June. So well, Jason, thank you so much for making the time to come on here. I just wanted to just shoot the shit on podcasting for a little bit and just get your historical take on some of the stuff that you had a front row seat at which is fascinating just to think back i don't even know if, if you thought at the time that that wave that you're experiencing it was just going to get so big and it feels like there's something else happening in podcasting now that's <laughs> carpet baggers it, it, everywhere trying to <laughs> reek every or eke every dollar out of it 
They can go away as far as I'm concerned, yes. Yeah, it's an interesting time. But it's also fun to be part of podcasting. I thought it was late in 2014 when, when I started, and I was just like, you know, okay, I'm just... Kept... You, yeah, you were at the right yeah. time, you know. <laughs> so it's fun to watch. It's a fun industry to be a part of, and just happy for people to get a, to know you a little bit more, and then hopefully get some more listeners on, on the show as well. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. This was a, a blast. It was just a total blast. <laughs> What's the best place for folks to connect with you online? Uh, jpd.me. Just go to jpd.me. That's my website. There's a contact form there. I'm on Twitter and all the other stuff. There are links from there. But jpd.me is basically my homepage. And make sure to hit him up on scooters, crypto, and Facebook. AI. <laughs> uh, you want to talk about AI? I, I can tell you how that doesn't exist all day long. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. I appreciate your time. Thanks, man. Thanks again to Jason for coming on the show. Always appreciated. And Jason's been on my radar for a long, long time. So I'm, I'm honored to have him on the show and to share all those fantastic stories with us. We just really had smiles from ear to ear throughout the whole conversation. Full show notes, resources mentioned, podcastjunkies.com forward slash 274. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil, cedarsoil.com to check out his amazing catalog. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlett 2i2 Pro. Check out the full lineup at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus Tune in next week for another conversation with another return guest, Jen Briney, executive producer and host of Congressional Dish Podcast. Jen and I go way back to when I started. Her show was before mine, and I remember seeing her speak I think it was at Podcast Moon or Podfest. And I was like, wow, she needs to come on. I hope she says yes. And we're now really good friends. And it was just a, a fun time to catch up and just even learn just how farther, how much farther she's gotten with uh, Congressional Fish. Truly, truly inspiring. And how she's making money from the show as well through uh, support from all her listeners. Okay, enough of me. If you've made it this far, you're no doubt waiting for the retention hashtag. Let's go with Grumpy Jason. And you can tag us at podcast underscore junkies and jason at jpdef that's jpdef thanks for all you do to support the show love you guys back on track talk to you next week